Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com I like to listen. Welcome to Channel 9 of the STRY Radio Network, where stories live. to this podcast. Be aware, this show often uses very naughty language. If you don't like that, you shouldn't listen. Send your complaints to I am a whiny baby with no sense of humour at nightstory.com or stop by the studio. I'll take you for a ride to a story of my choosing. Hey everybody, welcome. You are listening to the Ninth Story Podcast. I'm Immortal Alexander. This is episode 506. Today our guest is writer, editor, and publisher Stacy Longo. And before we get into the interview, my co-host Jeanette Andromeda will be performing one of Stacy's stories from her anthology Secret Things. So enjoy that and they'll be going right on to the interview. And now, a story from our guest. This is Max Elliott, Exterminator, written by Stacy Longo and published in Secret Things, Twelve Tales to Terrify. Max Elliott was an exterminator. He'd cleared zombies out of entire towns in his prime, severing spinal cords and sending undead heads rolling without breaking a sweat. His preferred weapon of choice was his machete, which he was using now to clean out the dirt under his fingernails, reclining with his boots up on the dusty table in his little cottage. Once the vaccine had eliminated the zombie plague, Max had found himself out of a job. Decimated cities were being rebuilt. Zombie hordes were rounded up and cured or disposed of, and trees were being planted along neighborhood streets. Max was a fighter, not a builder, and he had found himself with little to do a zombie slayer with no one to decapitate. He sat now waiting for a knock at the door, calling him to action once again. The knock came. Max opened the door to his red-faced neighbor, a portly woman who owned the cottage down the road. She was panting, having rushed at a high waddle to reach Max's bungalow. "'Come quick!' gasped the woman, putting her fists up to her mouth. "'It's a nightmare! They've taken over the whole garden!' Max turned and spit, his saliva tinged brown from the wad of tobacco that rested between his cheek and jaw. He patted his pocket to reassure himself that he'd had enough Copenhagen to carry him through this new mission, then turned back to the neighbor and smiled, brown flecks of chaw stuck in his teeth. "'What seems to be the problem, ma'am?' he drawled. The neighbor shuddered. "'Hey, Fitz!' she squeaked in a low whisper. "'Max Elliot?' Exterminator was back in the saddle again. Well, that was amazing. You guys really brought that story to life. Thank you. You're so welcome. <laughs> I can't even. <laughs> you just walked into the Ninth Story podcast. Are you sure you were supposed to come here? Because I'm not sure you were. Oh, wait, you write? That's great. You are in the right place, because we're talking about writing and editing with the author, Stacy Longo, today. Hi, Stacy. Welcome to the podcast. 
Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hi. I only said hi to you. Hi to Alexander, too. Hi. How you doing? <laughs> I made it. I, I'm, I'm like constantly cracking my voice lately. I don't know why. Second puberty. Uh, yeah, I just turned 40 the other day, and I think it's sec- <laughs> it is second puberty. So this is Immortal Alexander. I'm Jeanette Andromeda. Welcome to the Nine Story Podcast. And the voice, the, the third voice you hear, is, as I said, was Stacey Longo. Yeah, that's me. Yay! Now we know <laughs> whose voice is whose. So, Stacey... Um, we met once upon a time back in Rock and Shock, and I've kind of been like internet stalking you ever since. But <laughs> well, no. you seem you... to like it, so it's okay, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I I have one groupie. It's you. <laughs> Yay! We always come and say hi to Stacy. Yeah, true, I appreciate actually. it. <laughs> um, so I was going to make an attempt to sum up all of the things you do. <laughs> However, that seems like a really challenging thing. I know you write, I know you edit, I know you publish, I know you blog, I know you do movie reviews, but um, what specific things would you like to mention real quick? <laughs> oh, Lord. Um, I guess first and foremost, I'm a writer. So I mostly write horror, although I also, I've done a couple of kids books too. And then I'm also an editor. That's really my full-time job because i I'm a freelance editor. Right now I have a full-time contract during the day and then I come home at night and I edit for like six to eight hours at a stretch till I pass out from exhaustion. Wow. <laughs> where, where do I sign up? I, I know, right? <laughs> um, this, and this is what I want to do too, so perfect. <laughs> so, it's a lot of work, but it's fun. I'm I'm very curious. Like there's this weird fuzzy halo around the term editing what exactly does an editor do well a good editor (laughs) okay what does a good editor do (laughs) Uh, all right so you'll hear a lot of terms if you're if you're a writer looking for an editor you'll see a lot of terms online you'll see content editor line editor proofreader really what you want is someone who does all of that so a good editor will go through a manuscript after you've polished it up and you're ready to show it to someone else Um, and an editor goes through it page by page, line by line, and they go through and they check not only grammar, punctuation, spelling, are you formatting your ellipses right? Are you, um, do your subject and verb agree? Um, so they check all of that and it is very labor intensive. And I always have the Chicago manual of style open. Um, in another tab when I'm working, just doing on, you know, working on that. But they should also be doing things like checking to make sure that your the things you refer to are correct. For instance, if you mention um, a tiger exhibit at the Barnum and Bailey Circus in 1943, then your editor needs to check to make sure that in 19 19- what I say, 53, 43, yep. that it did, that, that the circus was touring, that it did have tigers, um, that you spelled Barnum and Bailey, right? I mean, they're the ones that are, that are double checking you uh, to make sure your historical references are, are correct. And then finally, they're looking at content. They're making sure your dialogue is believable. They're making sure that, um, your character stays in character throughout the whole thing. If you have a, um, a, a racist cop in chapter one who by chapter six is 
uh, volunteering his time at the homeless shelter for the meth addicts. I don't know. I'm watching Breaking Bad right now, so it's fine. <laughs> gotcha. Anyway, if, and if it's if it's not consistent with the character thus far, then your editor needs to, should be flagging that and saying this is really out of character for that person. And then also major plot holes too. You mentioned in in chapter two that your character is the biological son of John F. Kennedy, but now in chapter six he's the biological son of Weird Al Yankovic. <laughs> Pick one, uh, you know, and watch out for slander too. And so your editor might also want or libel actually in this case. You mm-hmm. you know you want to make sure that. Um, your editor should flag things that might violate, that might upset, say, living celebrities who don't want to be named as the biological father of your literary character, and things like copyright law, too. If you um, throw in, say you throw in two lines from a, a Duran Duran song, your editor should flag that and say, you know what, per copyright law, you can't do that. You can mm-hmm. mention the title, but you can't list the lyrics like that. So it's a lot. <laughs> I know, I know. I don't yeah, know what the, if wow. the uh, if film law has changed, but when we used to, when I used to do film, uh, somebody had told me that uh, I'd found out that you could use uh, like fifteen seconds of pretty much any song without ten seconds, 10 seconds of any song without having to get uh, the rights to use it, as long as it's only under ten seconds. So I'm guessing because it's direct lyrics and you can read it, it's a different kind of law. Yeah, it is. You're not supposed to be using the lyrics at all. There was a popular misconception that you could quote up to a certain number of words without getting permission, but it's actually not true. Um, but that's in, in writing. And I think that's exactly what it is. It's in print. They're, they're written song lyrics, and it, it falls under a different copyright issue. That's interesting. Uh, would it be a situation where, like, if you were quoting... If you're doing a research paper, you quote something, you put a footnote, and then you give credit to where it came from. Does is that how it works with songs, or is it totally different? Um, it's different. Uh, yeah, I mean, first of all, when you're if you're quoting them, you need to put it on the copyright page, and you know, and show that you know, and on that copyright page, it'll say you know, lyrics on page sixty-five from "Hungry Like the Wolf" by Duran Duran, copyright nineteen eighty-four, Simon Lebon, repeated with permission. Oh, wow. With permission, yeah. So when you go in to, like, edit someone's project, how many times do you go through, like, one, even a short story, like, one manuscript? Um, if it's just... No, I, all right. So I'm not even going to say if it's just me, because it's never just me. Um, because of the volume of work I have, I now have an editing partner. Mm-hmm. So... Um, we and that's Rob Smale. So Rob and I will each go through a manuscript. Like I'll go through it first. He'll go through it second. I'll go through it again. Um, and then we'll we then return the manuscript to the writer with all of our changes tracked and then a clean copy. And before, which is with all the edits um, accepted, and then the comments are still there. And then I actually quickly eyeball the clean copy to make sure that we didn't accidentally introduce any errors and then send it back. So probably about four. Wow. (laughs) Um. (laughs) Yeah. Reading. I mean, I have a hard time just reading like a book a week, which is what I was doing for a while there. Um, How many would you say you go through in about a week? How many manuscripts? 
Um, oh boy, I, it depends. I mean, it because it's freelance, mm-hmm. it's it's hard to say. I mean, we've juggled three a week, um, and that tends to be a little heavy for us. Um, but we also, I mean, keep in mind our timetable. We might be doing three, but we have three weeks to get them back. So, um, so, you know, it's not like I have to read it four times or three times and rob one time, you know, in, in the course of a week, we do have a little time there, which is how I fit in everything else. (laughs) That makes sense. (laughs) And and Stacy, in regards to being a publisher, how, how did you get started? Oh, oh boy. Um, let's see. I got started, oh boy, back in 2013. I mean, there are a lot of small presses out there and some of them do great things and some of them not so much. And I really, first of all, I have a lot of friends who are horror writers who are really good at what they do. And I wanted to, really the purpose of the press was to expose more readers to writers I love that are also my friends. So there was that aspect of it, but I also wanted to put out a higher quality product than what I was seeing. I mean, obviously editing is very, very important to me. And a lot of the small press stuff that I see needs more editing. So, um, and I, that sounds kind of jerky of me, and I'm sorry, but, you know, what, uh, oh, well. I think it's true, though, because there's a lot of, you know, the nice slash bad thing about the world that we're in right now is it's so much easier to get your book published. Like, if you go self-publishing, you can have a Kindle out really quick, which yeah. is great, except you don't necessarily go through that process of, hey, someone's doing fact-checking and checking your semicolons and... You know, like editing is still really, really, really important. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It is, and and I don't, I don't see a lot of it in the small press. So I wanted to make sure that we could, you know, I wanted to put out good stories that I loved that were well done. You know, um, so that's kind of how I got started in in publishing. What has been some of your biggest challenges? Um, personally, the biggest challenge is that I. I get a lot of people who think that because we're friends, I'll publish them. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, and not just that. I mean, and, and I get friends who will submit, and um, it, it's very hard to tell them no, and I hate that. But, but you know, unfortunately, it's an um, it's a necessary evil. So that's that's the hardest part, really, rejecting people. And actually, it's not just my friends, even. I mean, we've had open calls for submissions where I have had to reject strangers, and it's always hard. Mm-hmm. I hate doing that, um, but you know, you have to. Mm-hmm. It, it yeah. is. I mean, it's true because, like, I remember when I was uh, in film that once I started doing some producing for film, everybody came out of the woodwork like with scripts yeah. and handing oh, me. <laughs> You know, and they're like, oh, can you do this, do this, do this? And I'm like, well, what are you bringing to the table? Like, I can't, do you have skill sets? Do you have, have you won any awards on anything? Like, if I'm going to go out and find money for X project, what are you bringing to the table that brings value? Oh, the idea. And everybody thinks that the idea holds just as much merit as the finished product, and it really doesn't. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. I think, you know, and, and mentioning that too, one of the other challenges, um, a lot of, with publishing, publishing is a lot different these days. It's not like 
even the big five publishers, they don't, you know, New York, the, the, the big ones, they don't push and promote like they used to. I mean, they will for their biggest names. James Patterson and Stephen King are certainly getting promoted, but, mm-hmm. um, so for small presses, I, I, I push my authors, you know, and, and I promote them as much as I can. And I send out press releases and I buy ads and I try and get the word out as much as possible. But a lot of it is on them too. Mm-hmm. And I need them to do things like remind people that their book is out and get the word out. If, if I happen to be running a sale on it and it's very hard to get them to do that, to, to get them to push their own work. I have a few that are great at it, but they're the exception, not the rule. And um, so that's hard. It's frustrating. What things have you noticed have been some of the most successful in the ones that do self-promote? Like what, what tools are they using that they've found the most impact from? Um, I, I definitely, I have one author who has gone above and beyond trying to find outlets that I wouldn't necessarily have thought of, like buying by, like buying ad space on a podcast, <laughs> um, so, which I hadn't thought of. Um, and he went and found that and did that on his own, which was awesome. Um, I, you know, I have authors that will tease their books leading up to the, the publication date, the release date, and that's fantastic. Um, the, our Tricks and Treats anthology that we just put out this past fall one of the authors is also a blogger and what he did was um he interviewed all of the authors that were involved and then and each you know every couple days he put up a new interview to promote the release of the book and hey here's a spotlight on this author i thought that was a great idea um so things I think like that I- blogs are in and the multi or the social media sphere in general has been really helpful from what I've seen. Um, I haven't published anything yet, but it's just like, I, I am totally one of those people who just absorbs a lot of information, especially about marketing lately. I've been really obsessed with it. And, uh, I think from a reader's perspective, it's really nice to see a writer who has a blog so that there is like a more consistent way of staying in contact with, you know, you, you know, for example, the fact that I can just be like, hey, Stacy, how you doing on Twitter? It's really satisfying. <laughs> good. That's good to hear. At least there's a purpose to it then. Because sometimes when I'm blogging, I'm like, why am I doing this? <laughs> and I think as a publisher, that sounds like a really great idea that if you can't get the author to reach out to the fans, you bring the fans to the author and start to start the conversation. And I think it's also kind of almost like a teaching method to teach authors the benefits of social media, that if you're having a positive back and forth exchange and, and talking directly to people, then you're forming a personal relationship and now they're more attached to you and your work. Right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I do. There, In some ways, it's brilliant. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that was some of your biggest challenges. What have been one or two of your biggest wins with your publishing company? Which, by the way, uh, you have Books and Booze Press, and then there were a couple others, right? Uh, no, but, well, yeah, Farmer's Daughter Press is, uh, yeah, it's kind of an offshoot of Books and Booze Press, because Books and Booze is strictly horror, mm-hmm. and um, 
since I have some kids, well, particularly with the MS books, I didn't want that coming out under Books and Booze Press, so that's really how that got started. But um, biggest successes, um, I don't know. I think we've put out some really great books. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of proud of that. Um, and, oh, Tricks and Treats just won the Predators and Editors Reader's Choice Award for Best mm -hmm. Anthology for 2016. So that was pretty awesome. That felt really good. Congratulations. That's fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> I liked how you blended together that particular anthology. I haven't read it yet, but the fact that you had living and dead authors mixed in there was pretty fantastic. Thanks. It was a little bit of a challenge trying to find something that would fall under the genre of spooky stories from, say, Charlotte Perkins Gilman. But it was it was fun because I got to read a lot of her stuff and I wound up, you know, her twain um Harriet Beecher Stowe, I found a lot of works that I didn't know existed that did fall in that genre. So it was great. It was fun. How long did it take to put that collection together? Uh, approximately. Um, <laughs> approximately two years. That um, is a lot faster than I was expecting. <laughs> oh, all right, because I, I thought it'd be cool. I always have an idea that it's going to be nine months to a year in my head mm -hmm. for her book. But, um, that one, yeah, that took two years just from getting the authors in. Well, it, it started as a project with my writers group and, oh, cool. um, we, I will say the first deadline I gave them was a little ridiculous. I think I gave them something like three months and, um, two or three of them had never written horror before. So that was, that was a little ambitious. So then I, I gave, I, at that point I was like, I knew when I wanted it to come out, I knew I wanted it to come out in the fall. So I was like, all right, you got another year. <laughs> so. <laughs> but then it gave everyone a, a fighting chance to actually do it. <laughs> yeah. 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 They did. And they came through really that I was very impressed with the stories that I got. Very nice. I look forward to reading that one. Um, oh. Yeah. Go for it, Shoot you coffee then. <laughs> yes. <Nice. laughs> Love it. <laughs> Jeanette loves coffee so much. It's... Well, books. And coffee. And coffee. Where did coffee come from I don't in know. this conversation? I don't know. Did I hear <laughs> I thought I heard coffee. No, a copy. A oh, copy. And and coffee. <laughs> all of those things. <laughs> he sent me a book, I'll read yeah. drink coffee while I was I was up all night all night last night oh, uh, yeah. uploading the latest episode of Ninth Story uh, without going back. I didn't get to bed till like four in the morning, and then I had to get up at eight a.m. to go get blood work. So yeah, so his, um, his brain's dribbling out his ear hole right now. Yeah, a little bit. One <laughs> <laughs> of you won't be on the ball to respond. Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so Stacy, with uh, as a writer uh, with Triplicity, uh, tell us about how this collection came together. Okay. Triplicity uh, started at a wedding. I was, yeah, it was kind of fun. I was at, at a wedding. Two writer friends of mine were getting married. Um, and so a lot of the guests were also writers, which was awesome. And uh, I was hanging out, talking with Tony Tremblay. And we were talking about writing because that's what writers do. We love to talk about writing. Mm -hmm. And um Tony had been toying with a novella idea for a while, 
And we started talking about how much fun it would be to have a bunch of us write novellas and have them come out as a collection. And at that time, when we were talking about it, um, I was not going to be the publisher. We were actually going to pitch it somewhere else. Hmm. Um, So a few of us started writing. It was Tony and I and then a couple of other writers. And... In the meantime, Tony and I then saw each other again a couple months later, and we were done with our novellas. We had sent them to each other for critique and feedback, and we were talking about editing, and the publisher that we were going to pitch it to, I had made a comment about, I hope that they'll let me have one round of the editing process, and Tony was like, what do you mean one round? And I guess we're unusual because at Books and Booze, it really goes through six edits. And so I was explaining that to Tony, and he was like, "We no, we're not going to submit it to this other place because I know they don't do that. So he said, can we do it through Books and Booze? So I was like, okay. <laughs> so so kind of I kind of wound up getting it unexpectedly. So... The then in the meantime, the other two authors who were involved, they needed more time. And due to the the problems with that deadline being being extended, because Tony and I were ready to go, um, and Tony needed his rights back within a certain amount of time, mm-hmm. um, we wound up changing it. So originally it was going to be one book for novellas. And <clears throat> It wound up, I, I knew Rob Smales had a novella ready to go. We wound up asking him if he would, if, if I could have that novella for this, for the first book. And then we were going to ask another author to be in the second book, Gene Munson, because I love Gene. So, um, but then, of course, I can't have a book of three and then a book of three without having a third book of three. So, <laughs> so <laughs> myself. So yeah. um so I wound up contacting three more authors and now we're looking it's actually nine novellas in a three book series. So yeah. I wound up uh, making a lot more work for myself. Yay. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> yeah. So the first book came out Triplicity in November and the next one will be out in September. Awesome. So this upcoming year. Yes. Nice. Yep. I look forward to reading that one as well. (laughs) I'll send you a copy with a coffee. Perfect. (laughs) Um, Because she needs it. Always. Um, For the listeners, um, I have read a lot of, not all of Books and Booze Press's collection of books, but a lot of them. And I consistently have been very impressed with the quality of books that you put out the stories are very interesting the editing really is just spot on and your characters depending on you know who's writing it but like your characters specifically Stacy, are always incredibly interesting and lively and I just well, that's something I always notice <laughs> well thank you I will say with with triplicity it um Rob Tony and I have very different approaches in, 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 I think in this book in particular, like mine was kind of, I, it was definitely tongue in cheek and I, 
it was trying to be kind of funny. And then Tony is more Lovecrafty and weird. And then um, not, not not in a bad way. Uh, and um, and then Rob's is kind of sentimental. So um, three stories. I was surprised and pleased how they came out. Because you were talking about how the three different stories were very, very different. They were very different, actually, Stacey. Um, uh-huh. But I kind of liked that. How good. Because <laughs> altogether, like, if you look at the three concepts, it was, you know, yours was very much like, kind of like, what what would purgatory be like in a broad sense? And then you have, <laughs> it was, uh, Tony was next in the book, right? Yeah. Tony's was like mm, post-apocalyptic super that one took that one took me for a ride by the way like I was not <laughs> expecting where that one ended up it oh. felt kind of X-Files-y but it started off feeling like The Walking Dead and it just really <laughs> really surprised me and I enjoyed that one but again a very different world yours was very based in reality this one was like based in another reality and then Rob was back, like, close to home. Like, you're just reading a book in front of the fire, getting cozy, you know? <laughs> but somehow yeah. they all worked together. I, I don't know how you did it, but you did. It, pure luck. <laughs> I actually, when you know, because we didn't really have a theme. We didn't have time for a theme because we didn't, we didn't want to restrict ourselves that way. And um, the fact that it, we wound up all having female protagonists... Um, that was kind of a nice little fluke. And I will say that that's, that was our theme all along. <laughs> um, and actually, and it worked well, the second book is going to be called three on a match and the three authors involved in that, um, which are Jean Munson, Melissa Crandall and Christy Peterson Schoonover there. The superstition of three on a match is that if three people light a smoke off a match, one of them is about to be shot. And um, that actually, even though I didn't give them a theme either, I didn't tell them what the title was going to be. It wound up working very well for the stories that came in. Nice. And where, where does that, that superstition come from? It's a military thing. Um, nice. So if you have three, three men, say, in a, a ditch, the first one lights the cigarette, which gets your enemy's attention. The second one is is lighting their cigarette and that, that gives them time to draw a bead. And then the third one, as they're lighting it, they get shot. Something I'd, like that. I'd heard that superstition before, but I'd never heard where it came from. So thank you. <laughs> I wound up learning cause I needed to define it for the book. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> it's always cool. Like finding all these little stories of where superstitions come from. And I think that's really what gets writers brains just lighting on fire on their own, just like a match. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So in uh, in Triplicity, uh, you start off the book with your story, Brando and Bad Choices, which is fantastic, by the way. Thank you. And I'm I'm not a, as big of a reader as Jeanette is. I'm I'm trying to get more into reading. I was more of a of an audio visual person for the longest time, mm-hmm. and uh, I love your story because it definitely drew me in. It, I mean, I I was so in the story. Totally, it starts off like a sitcom. And then, and then it quickly transitions into more of a Sting, Stephen King-like uh, tone. Can you tell us why you chose the shift in tone? Um, to make it darker. Because it was, as I was writing it, um, when I started out, I was 
writing the relationship, really, I wanted to paint the relationship between the two sisters and also kind of give an idea of, of who Stella was as a person, which is vain and selfish and jerky. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was, I really wanted to emphasize that relationship between the two sisters, and it did kind of sound sitcom but I, I wanted the their camaraderie and also a little bit of tension because of Stella's behavior to come through. Um, and once I established that, I was like, fabulous, let's send her to hell. <laughs> and, you know, and that's when the darker stuff comes in. So, you know, that's, that's why I went there. And I kind of like the two different tones because let's say you were to look back at something as a memory. Uh, I think we all have a very ideal way of where we look at things uh, whether it be moments in our life or good moments or bad moments, we don't really see them exactly as they are. We kind of see them as we would process them like as in a book or on television, it's a little more heightened or a little more silly or it's not exactly reality. So it's almost like the beginning of the story is uh, like an echo, mm-hmm. you know, more than reality. Well, thank you. I'm going to take that as a compliment. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> it is a compliment. <laughs> Not really a question, but it's a compliment. <laughs> Sometimes we just say things. That's okay. <laughs> the benefit of a podcast. Just say the thoughts that are on your mind. So, Stacy, I was uh, in preparation for this interview, also revisiting your bio. And uh, one thing that stuck out to me this time around, because, yes, I've read it more than once. <laughs> is... <laughs> I don't know if I've updated it, though. Well, you know, maybe you can just for the next time I go read it. Um, (laughs) You started writing in the Block Island Times as a humor columnist. Oh, my goodness. That word is a challenge. Columnist. Thank you, Alexander. You're welcome. (laughs) Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about that? I that was the best experience writing for the Block Island Times was the best experience living on Block Island. Maybe not so much. Um. When I graduated college, I thought it would be a great idea to move out to Block Island. Uh, you know, if, if you're a budding writer, what a great place to be to, you know, sit on the beach, stare at the waves and write all day. And what I failed to take into account was that I needed to pay my bills. <laughs> so, um, so I did not start writing immediately after I moved out there. I wound up, you know, getting a job and... Once I had established myself out there, I was actually the tax collector out there for many years. Um, I went back. I I refocused on on writing. And the local paper had – they were looking for new columnists. They had just – oh, no, they hadn't been bought out yet. They were actually looking for new columnists. And I had submitted a couple of pieces. And the editor at the time, a man named Kevin Weaver – that's right, Kevin. I still remember you – he, I saw him a, like a, a week after I had submitted my samples and he was like, you know what? I just, I don't get your sense of humor and I don't think other, I don't think readers will either. So I was heartbroken and, you know, figured as writers were not known for our self-esteem and I was like, I suck. So, um, yeah. So I went back to collecting taxes and then about a year later, the newspaper was bought out by a man named Royal Bruce Montgomery. He looked just like Mark Twain, fabulous man. Um, And he, I think the secretary at the paper, Erica Tonner, she 
remembered my submissions. She fished them out and gave them to Bruce. So clear out of the blue one day, I got a phone call from Bruce, Bruce Montgomery. And uh, he said, I, I want you to come write for me. And that was awesome. That's the best feeling in the world. I've never, never to this day have I experienced, well, maybe when I sold Ordinary Boy. But, you know, that was like, you know, like, hey, I want you to come write for me out of the blue, right in my lap. So I started, yeah, I, I had a weekly humor column for the Block Island Times um, for six or seven years. I wound up moving back to the mainland um, in 2005. And I did continue to write for them for a couple more years, but eventually the paper got sold again. And the guy who was running it was like, you know, you don't live out here anymore. It's funny, but it's not pertinent to Block Island. Mm -hmm. And that was fine. I was ready to be done with it. Mm -hmm. So um, did working for the Block Island Times, did that prepare you in any way for going into publishing on your own? Um. A little, but not maybe in the way you think. I, it 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 taught me a lot about layout. <laughs> hey, that's that's is a valuable skill. <laughs> yes, it certainly yeah, definitely it helps with layout. And also, I learned very quickly the importance of deadlines, and maybe they are to blame for what a raging bitch I can be when it comes to deadline. I do not like it when writers miss deadlines on me and I can be really mean about it. Mm -hmm. But I think that's from the paper because if someone misses a deadline, it throws everything off. Um, and it can, that it, for me as a publisher now, it throws off like my book schedule for four quarters for the next four quarters. If someone misses a deadline. So I think, I think Royal Bruce, taught me how to respect a deadline that's for sure i think it's important though like i mean you even though it might come off as mean to the writer it kind of kicks them in, in the butt and says okay god i gotta take this seriously i was given an advance or i have a deadline or whatever it is if you want to do this as a career you need to take it seriously and when i right. even went into uh learning more you know taking some lessons and trying to be a better writer and trying to learn how to be better with my craft I, I always wanted to find somebody that's going to, you know, cut through the bullshit and tell me exactly how it is. I don't want somebody who's going to be like, oh, that's fine. It's okay. You know, keep trying. I don't want a participation award. I want to, I want to get better. <laughs> exactly. And, and you're absolutely right. I mean, the beauty of writing as a craft is that there's always more to learn. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, any writer who says, yeah, I got this, I'm done. I don't need to learn anymore. I'm perfect. They're, they're not going to do well. Um, and someone saying, oh, it's fine. It, 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 that's not helping you at all to grow and to learn. I absolutely agree. I, you need to have people giving you f critique and feedback and, and, and instruction really so that you can get better because we can all always get better. And that, I think that's part of why we do this, you know, is to get better. Even if we're like, wow, that was an amazing thing I made. It's never, good job, me. I'm done. It's, what's next? Oh, I have right. this other idea. I could make it so much better. <laughs> exactly. It's a, it's a blessing and a curse. It's a yeah. blessing because I don't think we're ever, if we have something to do, you know, to work on, we're never bored. Mm -hmm. But it's also frustrating because you've got, you know, like one voice and one character talking to you and you've got another one in the background going, hey, I'm next. <laughs> so... <laughs> 
What got you interested, uh, Stacey? What got you interested in becoming a writer? I've always loved to write. I've always loved to read. I've always loved to write. When I was a kid, I'm I'm very much an introvert, and um, I when I was a kid, I would rather stay inside and read than go out and play. Um, and so I grew up on a dairy farm. So, all right, I did grow out, go out and play a lot and catch frogs and that kind of fun stuff and feed the cows. But um, I used to write stories about the animals on the farm um, just to entertain myself because I thought it was fun. I had one character, Detective Kitty. I know I was not good with names, <laughs> but so it wasn't very clever, but it was fun. And then um, I had a great English teacher in high school. Miss Lacoste, I still love you. Um, and she was very influential because she she taught me how to appreciate all kinds of literature and writing. I mean, up until that point, I was reading things that I like. I've read a lot of Stephen King and I read, um, you know, the things like, you know, when I was younger, Nancy Drew and um, the Chronicles of Narnia. But um, she... She opened me up to things like um, Greek tragedies and comedies and Dante's Inferno, one of my favorite books to this day. And it was her passion and love for all different kinds of writing that made my love of writing grow because it, it really – she showed me a whole new world. and You know, all, all, all these different books that I hadn't – bothered to pick up in the past and um and she even taught me how to appreciate poetry i don't love poetry although your your tuesday haikus are fabulous <laughs> but um i yeah but so she was very influential and then when i got to college i i could have either gone into criminology because i'm a huge true crime buff or writing and i figured you know what i've only been into the criminology thing for a couple of years but i've always loved writing so i'm gonna i'm gonna do that Seems like it was a solid choice. Plus, you're still learning criminology with all the people you kill off anyway. So that's true. That's true. I always worry about like what my computer Google search would look like. Oh god, me too. <laughs> yeah, it's like a major concern. <laughs> I was like, why were you looking up these broken bone photos? Well, I wanted to know exactly how it would feel. I know. I was like looking up. OJ death scene photos today, which is to, I'm on my work computer, no less. I'm tired. <laughs> there was another actor. There was on IMDb when I was doing film, we had the same first name and last name. So she was an actress and I was a production designer and we ended up on the same IMDb page. So <laughs> there was no way to separate us because neither of us were like unions. So we couldn't say, hi, hey, IMDb, can you separate these two people? Because they're two people. <laughs> nope um so then that's why like the name changes were helpful so that I wasn't <laughs> entirely tied to these other people apparently my initial name was very very popular and uh among artists in particular there's this really fantastic watercolorist who's like if you google my my first name it's just like oh well I'm never gonna show up there so the the new pen name really is quite helpful I also like it a lot. Jeanette Andromeda sounds exotic. It does. <clears throat> kind of fun. Yeah. And exciting. And exciting. 
I blend <laughs> words together a lot when I speak. It, it runs in the family. My mom, my sister, we all do it. Oh, that's better than, you know, the hips that I inherited from my mother. I ride a horse with these saddlebags. But you get blended words. Sure. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, Stacey, what advice would you give to writers who uh, reach the point where they want to start reaching out to editors and publishers? Um, I would not start reaching out to editors and publishers until your draft is really polished. Once you've written the first draft, go through it and edit it, then put it aside and then pick it up again in a couple months and go through it and edit it again. Then join a writer's group or have some friends who are also writers, um, who have them read it and give you critique and feedback and then edit it again. Um, and don't ask your mom or your sister. They're going to tell you it's wonderful. And they're like you said, nobody wants an award for participation. They're going to blow smoke up your ass. And so you need someone who actually is also a writer themselves who can recognize and point out things that need to be improved. And then once you've done that, I, I usually advise people, I like to see things after about five drafts. Mm-hmm. Um, so then you, if you are ready for an editor, um, start asking people, start, if your friends have used editors, ask them who they recommend. Always, always, always read something that that editor has edited, because I'll tell you one thing, a lot of people say they're editors and they are not. I've met probably 200 editors in my life. It was 200. Apparently I can't enunciate. Mm-hmm. Um, I know three maybe that actually can do the job right and do it well. Um, And one of them's my editing partner because as soon as I realized he could, I made him my partner. So um, a lot of people will say that they are editors and they really, they do not do a good job. Any editor that you contact, you can go to the um, EFA, which is the editorial freelancers association. There's a lot of great editors on there. Um, you can, any editor that you contact, um, ask them if they'll do a sample edit. And they most, I can't think of any of them that are truly professional that won't. Of course, they'll, they'll edit a few pages. You also want to make sure you got someone who's, um, who you, you, who's a good fit for you. Mm-hmm. Um, some editors are harsher. And if they're, if you are a writer who might be a little more thin skinned, maybe you don't go with a big meanie. Um, and, uh, you know, so at that point, once you, you've worked with an editor and you've really polished this piece up, it is the best it can possibly be. Um, then start querying publishers and agents. And I, I mean, you can, I would definitely check out predators and editors.com and predators is spelled like editors, but with a PR, um, they'll let you know. Um, there are a lot of horrible people out there who just want to part writers from their money. Mm-hmm. Um, and I should also say, too, if you are a new writer at looking to get published for the per- first time, don't pay anyone to publish you. That's not a professional publisher. That's a parasite who's trying to make money off your back. Um, you should not have to pay someone to publish your work. They should be paying you. 
That's incredibly valuable advice because when you first get out there, I mean, you don't know, like, oh, this must be normal. Everyone just has to pay to get published the first few times. No, no, they don't. And it's not normal. And, uh, you know, those those people are scam artists and they're called vanity presses and they're mm. horrible people and I hate them. And some of them will charge writers $1,500 and some of them will charge writers $5,000. Wow. Yeah, it's disgusting what they'll do. And a lot of them won't, they don't give you anything in return. They'll, they don't edit. In fact, I think there's one out there who, besides parting you from their money, they say, we don't edit your book because we want to keep it in your true voice. Oh, oh, oh. Yes. oh that's yes. rich. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I mean, it's the same. It is the same thing in the film world where uh, yeah, there's a is. lot of distributors that will simply take your work out of your hands, tell you that they will pay you X amount of percentage once it starts to make money, and you will see nothing. Wow. They just throw it in their catalog. They don't even promote it, and you will never see a dime from that. Or yeah. even worse, they will they will take the rights to the book and say, "Okay, great, we now have control of this." But it's yep. a lot like this other movie we really want to promote, so we're just going to shelve it, and you can never use it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes see. That's interesting. I, yeah, I never thought of that, but yeah, yeah, that's uh, that, that's the darker side of. Uh, film yeah. publishing yeah that's definitely with film that they'll do that that they'll distribution. uh distribution they'll be like oh yeah this is going to go up against this so we're just going to put it in a vault and you'll never see it wow yeah all that work okay bye <laughs> yeah i know it's heartbreaking yeah oh. so um the one last thing i wanted to talk to you about before we you know get your links and everything was you had mentioned um the children's books you've been working on you sent me your um uh, forgive me, it was something about MS, and I don't have it pulled up on this computer. <laughs> okay, you want me to just launch into it? <laughs> My mom, MS, and si- the sixth grade mess. Yeah, tell us a little bit about that. All right, so I have a really good friend. Her name is Renee, and she, back in 2008, all right, so, so she's a good friend. She was one of my bridesmaids when Jason and I got married. And she's amazing. She can do anything. Like she made our wedding cake um, and she did it. We had like a movie theme. So our bride and groom were um, Oscar statues and statuettes. And that had a red carpet and she made popcorn out of fondant. I, you know, anyway, wow. so she's amazing. She can do, she can make and do anything. Um, so we got married in September, 2008 and then went on our honeymoon. And when I, Jason and I got back from our honeymoon, Renee had been diagnosed with MS and it's a disease that has seemed to be around me all my life. My best friend in elementary school, her mom had it. Um, When I was working on Block Island, my boss was diagnosed with it. Um, And then now Renee has it anyway. But Renee also, she got very passionate about fundraising for the National MS Society. And then she guilted all of her friends into joining her fundraising team which I, I think I can say with love um so and I'm open to guilt apparently anyway so uh, so I started fundraising with her and um in 2014 I was invited to be a guest at Super Mega Fest and it was the same weekend as the MS walk and I felt terrible so because I'm, I'm going to be at super mega fest in my mind, you know? So I, when I 
broke the news to Renee. Luckily, I knew very far in advance. I knew about eight or nine months in advance. And I had been toying with an idea to do a children's book about her family anyway. Um, her son, Patrick, uh, was in kindergarten when Renee was diagnosed. And he, that year, asked his friends, instead of getting me a birthday gift for my birthday, could you donate to the to our fundraising team for the MS Society? Which, mm-hmm. for a kid that young, is amazing. Yeah. Um, and so... I wanted to write a story about that. So, so when I knew I couldn't go in 2014, um, I met Renee for lunch and said, well, I, the bad news is I can't do the walk with you this year, but the good news is I wrote and published a book for you to use as a fundraiser and it's about your family. So that was, yeah, that was the first one. That was, um, my mom has MS and it's definitely a kid's picture book and it's, um, to educate kids to start the conversation when a parent is diagnosed and the whole message is that, you know, just your, your parent isn't this diagnosis. They still, they're still them and they still love you and they can still do things with you. Um, and then Patrick's older now. And, um, I've had people at events ask me if I was going to write another one aimed at a little bit older crowd or a crowd age range. Um, so so I thought about it, and I talked to Renee, and we went back and forth with some ideas and just some things that had come up in Patrick's life. You know, like he had he had to wax his eyebrows because he had a unibrow. And it, poor kid, I hope he's not listening right now. Well, I, I put it in the book. So. Um, so we did a second book, and this one's targeted more, you know, like it's, it's toward middle school. But um, it's like to let kids know that you can get frustrated at mm-hmm. that. Like that's a normal reaction. But again, it, it doesn't have to be your whole life. It's just a diagnosis. So anyway, so we're using that as a fundraiser this year. I I do like, I, I didn't read the whole book yet, but I read uh, the first, like, I don't know, chapter or something. Um, oh. a, a few pages in at least. And I like how you introduced your characters there. Because even though the title of the book is My Mom, MS, and the Sixth Grade Mess, you kind of start with the Sixth Grade Mess in a way. Like, it's her MS is introduced really early on, but yep. we get to know Patrick early enough that it's it's not, it's more like, you know, Diary of a Wimpy Kid already. You know, it's more about him and his struggles and making it a more human story was really nice to see. Because I've seen, like, fundraiser books before where they focus too much on this is what this is and this is how we're gonna deal with it and it's all gonna be fine and you know like (laughs) there's some cute artwork and then that's it but there's not a lot of content there I like that you you seem to start with the content and add you know like the fact that she can't pet the cat because it feels like she's holding shards of glass for example like I didn't know that's what it felt like to have MS but it was just interesting to have it like clarified that way in a way that was very visual so nice job oh thank you yeah I didn't want to concentrate I want I wanted it to be a story not just a lecture you know and it isn't a lecture it is you know it, it it's definitely Patrick's trials and tribulations in sixth grade so poor Patrick <laughs> poor he seems like a cool kid though <laughs> he let me tell you that kid is so easygoing because really his mom and I just kind of like brainstormed on this. And we were like, by the way, we're writing another book about you and we're going to, you know, mortify you. And he was like, yeah, okay. 
<laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, it was pretty cool. So, uh, Stacy, where can people find you and your work? Oh, my goodness. I am like diarrhea. I am everywhere. Um, <laughs> that is the best. I want that on a bumper sticker. <laughs> It'll be the title of the show. <laughs> Just like no. diarrhea and everywhere. <laughs> I like to keep it classy. That's it. <laughs> keep it. All right. We'll do it. Keeping it classy. Yeah. <laughs> so I am on the social medias. I'm on Twitter at Stacy B. Longo. I am on Facebook. Um, I think it's Stacy Longo author. I mean, I have an author page. Um, and you can find me online at www.stacylongo.com. And that's Stacy with an E. So it's S-T-A-C-E-Y-L-O-N-G-O.com. If you're looking for the best editors in the world, um, Rob Smales and I can be found at um, SNL Editing, which is slediting.com. And I do movie reviews over at Cinema Knife Fight. If you, I think it's ballsertown.com. I, I, I had it called up. We'll add that to the show notes as well. All right, yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then I'm also at thestoryside.com. I do um, a couple blogs, blog posts there a month. Um, so, yeah, like I wasn't kidding. I am diarrhea. Just all everywhere. <laughs> I I feel like you and I are similar as far as our internet activities go. <laughs> like, I actually I am in awe of you though because I I know I have too much on my plate and I don't know how you do because you you post every day. I mean I know Alexander you're doing some of it too. Yeah. But, but he's a um, big part. Of she it. was just um, so overwhelming herself because she just wanted to do everything. That's the thing. Yeah. I don't and I was like, I was like, well, what can I do to help? I was like, well, you like writing. How about you want to write side runs up writes? Oh my god, English. You want to learn how to speak and then write things? Sure, I can do that. <laughs> so I was like, you know, I, I'll get. And it, it gave me a good excuse to write every day. Uh, or write at least weekly. I'm just banging on the table. She's saying, don't make those noises. It comes out on the microphone. I'm like a child here with all this equipment. I do know how to operate it. Even okay. though, <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm still banging things. <laughs> I'm, I am Italian. My hands need to flail around aimlessly constantly. I'm Italian too. And I talk with my hands all the time. And my Fitbit, like... I don't do enough steps in the day, but mm -hmm. if I'm talking, it'll be like, boom, 250 steps. Exactly. <laughs> I, I expended so much energy just talking today. Because <laughs> of the arm flailing. Yeah. But it was good because it, it gave me an excuse to come in and, and do some writing every week. And yeah. then it also, with the uh, hashtag Fear Fridays I do on Friday, it gave me an excuse to wanting to be more social on social media. I'm still learning how to be better at social media and less because it's, it's such a weird Coming from Italy, like or, or being an Italian, it's hard for me to understand not looking at someone's face and body language and having a conversation and understanding where they're coming from. So when I disconnect that and I'm on social media, it's such a foreign concept for me. I'm just still learning how to get comfortable with that. Yeah, it's hard because, you know, like, yeah, voice and tone and like you said, body language expression, none of that, none of that comes through on social media. So, yeah, I've been known to like make a crack or two and really, really offend people and not even know it. It's really easy to do, which is yeah. why I will often put things in at the end of something, say sarcasm font. 
I think, <laughs> I, think, I think that's why people use memes so much because then it it's is, a lot clearer. You know, yeah, exactly. You have a facial expression. <laughs> that's why stickers and emojis are really important. It's like, I said something dickish. Winky face. I'm just kidding. I know it's dickish. <laughs> yeah, I, I've put a lot of um, practices into my life that allow me to be as productive as I am. Um, I think that should be an episode someday because I use a lot of scheduling and like all other productivity things. My other passion is entrepreneurial podcasts and I learn a lot about productivity and want to try all of it. <laughs> or an a, a entire episode about the psychological meaning behind why people buy poop emoji pillows. Oh, that is fascinating. Yes. It is fascinating. I, I, why? Why do people do it? Like, it's, yeah, I can get like I have colitis. People will give me poopy emojis all the time because I think it's funny. <laughs> but <laughs> it's, it's not. <laughs> anyway, why? I mean, I, I just walked into a Walmart once and I just saw an entire display of giant poop emoji pillows. And I just had to take a picture of it just with the caption, why? <laughs> why does this exist? Right. Who's hugging this? <laughs> It's because everyone in their deepest heart of hearts just wants to be a little shit. <laughs> Maybe. Or a really big fluffy one. Or a big fluffy one. <laughs> yeah, there were some giant dookies at Walmart, all right? You could wear that as a hat. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I'm glad we ended this interview with class. <laughs> yes. We really really brought it home, yeah. Clink your martinis, everyone. Enjoy. <laughs> This is what writers actually are. In case you were wondering, no, we don't always wear scarves and drink martinis, but when we do, we talk about poop emojis. <laughs> we do. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Stacy, for hanging out with us. It was a lot of fun. Oh, thank you, Jeanette and Alexander, for having me on. I appreciate it. Wow, you made it to the end. You get 12,000 awesome points. Good job. If you want to talk to us, we now actually have a Twitter account for the Night Story Podcast. It's at Night Story Podcast. If you want to talk to Mortal Alexander and I. If you follow Night Story, that is Night Story Studios, whom you should still follow. But that is Dan Foytek, who runs all of the Night Story Studios stuff. That's the Lift. That's the Wicked Library. That's all of the things. So talk to Dan at Night Story Talk to us at Ninth Story Podcast. Oh, yeah. And yeah, we're brand new. So we only have like at this moment in time, like 31 followers. And I would really love for those followers to be people that listen to the show so we can talk to you because I really do want to know what you had for breakfast. Was it was it alphabets? Think about that. <laughs> And uh, if you want to hear any of the other stuff we've been up to, they, you can find that on HorrorMade.com. Thank you guys for listening. And if you want to create things that other people can listen to, you can do that with Rode Microphones, our sponsor. And check all of their wonderful selection of microphone stuff over on Rode.com.